Uh, we're going to go ahead and pray for the sermon, so if you'll join me. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we thank you for this day, um, a new day that you've given us for every breath, um, for every soul in this room, Lord. Um, we ask and pray that your word would have its full effect on us um, as we continue in the Gospel of Mark. May your word uh, just go out and we know that it will not come out void. Um, we ask and pray just uh, be with the preacher. Uh, we know that you've been with him as he prepared and be with him now and be with us all. All this we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Good afternoon again, family. I'm super hot in the mic. So. As Rob was praying, we are still in the gospel according to Mark. And today our text is Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. So if you don't mind uh, grabbing your Bibles and turning and opening to Mark chapter 12. Verses 13 through 17. If you don't have a, a Bible, excuse me, there should be a hardback black one nearby under a chair. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, then that is our gift to you today. You can take it and run. Nobody will stop you. Uh, Mark chapter 12, as I said, verses 13 through 17. And here we are now in the last week of Jesus' life and ministry before his crucifixion and burial. And, and so here, as you can see, Mark has 16 chapters. Uh, we entered into uh, the last week of Jesus' life at Mark chapter 11. So you can see that he has dedicated the major portion of his gospel to the passion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so where everything has been moving very rapidly. Remember, Mark's favorite word has been immediately all throughout this gospel. And, and we've fast-forwarded, basically, through uh, almost three years of Jesus' life and ministry. Suddenly, we're going to come kind of to a screeching halt, and things are going to slow way down. It's kind of like if you've ever been on one of those roller coasters uh, at SeaWorld or Six Flags, and as you're flying through and then all of a sudden it's going to come to an end and you start to come into uh, the back at home base where they let you off. And suddenly you kind of and you stop and then it moves very slowly, you know, and the, and the, the path, uh, the time that it takes from the moment that they slow you down to actually letting you out of the roller coaster is usually more time than the whole roller coaster took, right? And that's kind of how Mark's gospel works. We've moved so rapidly and so quickly uh, through the narrative of Jesus' life and ministry that covers three years. And now at Mark 11, Mark kind of hits the brakes, slows us way down, and now things are moving much slower, so much so uh, that this day that we're going to look at here is the same day that we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks. It started at the end of chapter 11 uh, and carries through. And this is, as best as we can tell, Tuesday of Passion Week, Tuesday of Passion Week. Remember, Good Friday uh, so we're at Tuesday. Friday will be the day that Jesus is actually crucified. And so a lot is going to happen in a very short period of time. And this Tuesday has been called the day of questioning. The day of questioning. Because this is the day that all of the Sanhedrin, which is the combined Congress, if you will... Uh, or uh, the combined parliament, if you will, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees that make up the religious leaders of the day and the scribes, uh, where they are coming, and now as we'll see today in our text, together with the Herodians, which we'll get into why, that, why I would say it that way, the Herodians, I mean, we're going to get into that, uh, they are all coming and they're posing their questions 
to Jesus. In fact, the first question uh, a couple weeks ago we glossed over uh, because of time. So we read it together. We didn't really deal with it. But the first question came at the end of chapter 11 when the authority of Jesus was challenged. And the first question they asked was, uh, by what authority are you doing these things? And so the, the combined group of the Sanhedrin are coming. They're questioning Jesus. And all throughout this day, they keep sending different factions of people to come and question Jesus. And what they're trying to do is to trip him up, to trap him, to get him to ensnare himself uh, by his own words. Uh, kind of that classic line, if you give someone enough rope, they'll hang themselves, right? That's what they're hoping will happen with Jesus. And so that's kind of where we are. If you caught that at the end of chapter 11, they posed a question to Jesus. He never answered them. He never answered them. By what authority do you do this? And he says, well, let me ask you a question. What authority and by what baptism or anointing uh, did John do what he did? Of course, referring to his cousin, John the Baptist. Now, remember, the people loved John the Baptist. And all the crowds that followed knew and were uh, unapologetic in saying that if there has been silence for 400 years, finally, the Lord God of Israel has sent to us another prophet, and his name is John the Baptist. And they weren't wrong. They weren't wrong. Jesus calls John the greatest of all of the Old Testament prophets. And so when they wanted, they knew, and they themselves knew that John was a prophet, but they knew that if they said he was a prophet, that they would have to admit that Jesus got his authority from the same place. If they said that he wasn't a prophet, then the people were going to revolt, and they were already concerned about what was going on with the crowds of people. And so that's kind of the, uh, the atmosphere that we're in. It's charged. It's, it's electric. There is tension. Uh, I was teasing uh, the elders and deacons the other night that we are in this moment uh, here at the time of Jesus' life and ministry, that if you were in your eighth grade English class and you were reading this account, this is where your eighth grade English teacher would teach you to write phrases such as, the tension was so thick you could cut it with a knife, right? Like that's what's going on here. The tension is thick. The atmosphere is charged. There is, there is animosity on one side with the Sanhedrin. There is uh, an electrified, remember, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord on the side of the crowds of people. And so there is this tension between those two places and it's building and it's building and it's building. And so Jesus knows it. The Sanhedrin know it. The people know it. Everyone knows that this tension exists. And in the middle of this tension, rather than de-escalating the situation, as Jesus has seemed to do so many other times, remember those times where the people were ready to rise up and crown him king. And what does he do? He just slips through and walks away. And on other times when the other people are ready to stone him, and what happens? He slips through and he walks away. He de-escalates the situation. But in this situation, what does Jesus do? Oh, I think now is a good time to tell a parable. And where all the other parables you've really had to scratch your head and try to figure out seed and road and rocks and thorns and what does this mean? This one you're not going to have to try and figure out. And so John Herrera last week walked us through that parable of Jesus uh, where Jesus tells the parable of the tenants, those who were the renters the, or the, 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 the keepers of a vineyard that was owned by someone else and what they did uh, to those that the, the landowners sent to come and collect his due. And what do they do? They, they kill everyone that he sends. 
John was faithful to show us. What did that represent? It represented all of the prophets that God had sent. And what was the one thing that all the prophets had in common? Nobody actually wanted to listen to them, right? So much so that they were killed uh, for speaking the word of the Lord. And then in the parable, the landowner says, well, surely they will accept my only beloved son. And when the son arrives, what do the people do? They don't say, oh, oh, we really misunderstood. We really need to back off. Oh, we really need to... Uh, you know, maybe rethink this whole thing. Instead, what do they do? They double down and they say, ah, if the son has arrived, surely this must mean that the father is dead, that the son has inherited and he's coming to check. So if we just kill him, then we can take the vineyard for ourselves. And there was no scratching of the head on this one. There was no sort of wondering, I, what, what is he talking about? I really don't know. Everyone knew. The people would have stood there like, <gasps> you know, who's, who's going to move first now? Right? I mean, because they understood that Jesus was saying, that the religious leaders of the day, they were the evil tenants that had killed. And he was, what was he doing? He was, he was attributing to their account, those who were living presently, all of the past sins and transgressions of their forefathers who stood in their place and killed the prophets. And now he's saying, now it's your turn. And the king has returned. And, and what are you planning to do what is the wickedness in your heart? And we already know what had they been plotting for a year and a half already. How they might put Jesus to death. So that's where we pick it up today. So if you would, Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. I invite you to stand if you're able. We'll read this passage of scripture together. It's a short one today. At the end of that reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. And I invite you to respond by saying thanks be to God. Mark chapter 12, 13 through 17. Let's begin. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. So it's a short passage today, but it is uh, nonetheless a very important one. Here we have those famous words of Jesus. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. Unfortunately, most people when they want to quote that verse, are only using it to quote the first part, render unto Caesar, and leave out the part that was the whole point of what Jesus was saying, render to God's that which belongs to God. And so here again, as with at the end of chapter 11, Jesus is being presented with another question. This is the second of several questions that he'll have to deal with and field on that day. And the religious leaders are here trying to set a trap for Jesus. In fact, it even says that explicitly. Mark tells us in verse 13 that they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Uh, literally, the word trap there that's being used 
is a pit that is dug for fearsome beasts. Okay, they are, they are literally trying to ensnare the Lord uh, the same way that someone might try to, to trap a leopard or a lion or a tiger, uh, a beast that they are afraid of, uh, that, that they do not want to get close to, that they are hoping they can entice into a trap that, that will be set and, and, and uh, triggered and, and, and that that beast will be dead uh, at the bottom of these snares. If you were not trying to live capture one of these animals, you would set up an, an, an example that you can uh, remember of this is probably from Swiss Family Robinson. Remember the Disney version of that movie where the little guy from Old Yeller is always trying to capture all the animals and so he digs a pit so he's going to catch a tiger and he actually does. Same idea, only this time you put uh, sharpened wooden stakes at the bottom of the pit so that whatever falls in it is not captured alive but is rather impaled. And that's what they want to do to Jesus. They are trying to snare him in this way. Also notice uh, that it says that they were sent. The they there, of course, is the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is this uh, two-house uh, uh, party uh, of religious leaders, uh, like we would think of Congress, that's made up of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees are, if you will, uh, to put it in our common parlance, they are, if you will, the ultra right wing conservative side of the religious leaders. The Sanhedrin are the liberal left and they are sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. OK, uh, if we Paul, what does Paul say in First Corinthians 15? If our hope is for this life only, we are of all people the most to be pitied, right? That there should be sorrow if our hope is only for this life only. And so the Sadducees, and it's a common joke, but they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in a resurrection. And that will come into play in the next question that Jesus is going to deal with. But here they are, and, and they really didn't like each other. Okay? Nothing has changed. <laughs> All right? And, and they didn't really like each other, but here we find they are united in their desire to put Jesus away. Not only are they united, but what does it say? It says, in this case, the whole group of the Sanhedrin sent, in this case, what? Some Pharisees, so some of the ultra-right conservatives... So they would have taken the laws of God the most seriously out of that whole group. And the Herodians, the Herodians weren't even a part of the Sanhedrin. They were a sect of Jews that supported the dynasty of Herod as being a good, a beneficial good for Israel. Herod, the dynasty of Herods was set up by Rome they were puppet leaders in Israel, and if you know your history, you would know that Herod himself was a mixed breed. He wasn't even a full Jew. He was half a Jew. But the reason this particular sect of Jews liked Herod and wanted Herod is because where the Pharisees were strict keepers of God's law, the Herodians were over here in their half-breed way. with God's law and allow giving allowances what we would call licentiousness or a, a, a license for sin they had an antinomian anti-law uh, idea when it came to God's law that you know maybe maybe these things are more like suggestions and we can kind of pick and choose the ones we like and the other ones we'll just kind of conveniently, you know, leave out. Now, that's the Herodians. 
The Pharisees are the ultra-religious, strict keepers of God's law, so much so that they added hundreds of laws to God's law to keep them away from breaking one of the laws. So if the law was, and I'm making stuff up now, but if the law was, thou shalt not walk this far on the Sabbath day, which was a real thing in God's law. He did say on the Sabbath day, don't walk any further than X. I don't remember what the exact amount was. But the Pharisees would come along and say, if you really want to show that you love God, if you really want to show that you obey God, then you should not even go that distance. You should go less than that distance. And it became this thing that if you broke that law, that somehow you were already breaking God's law, even though the boundary for God's law was much further and beyond than that. So imagine if you would, using your own Holy Spirit sanctified imaginations, what do you think, how do you think that the Pharisees and the Herodians would get along on your average day? They didn't. They flat out didn't. In fact, the Pharisees would be in that, uh, in fact, the, the Herodians, I mean, legitimately are religious apostates. And the Pharisees would have treated them as such. They wouldn't have wanted to step foot in their house. They wouldn't have wanted to be in the same room as them. They wouldn't want to sit on the same bench that they were sitting on, being afraid that they would become unclean because of that. They wouldn't eat with them. But now what do we see? We see them arm in arm walking up to Jesus on a Tuesday of Passion Week to present Jesus with a question. And so they come. And it says they were sent. Sent by the Sanhedrin. And the, the, new, the Greek New Testament word that is used there is the same Greek New Testament word that is used to describe Jesus as the capital A, apostolos, the sent one of God, the Messiah, as well as the same word that is used to delineate the apostles that were sent by Jesus into gospel ministry. Which means what? That, that they were being sent with some kind of commissioned authority. Some kind of commissioned authority. There was probably a committee on how to get rid of Jesus in the Sanhedrin. And this committee appointed this group of Pharisees and that group of Herodians to go together and try to put Jesus to the test to see if they could trap and ensnare him in his talk. And what do they do? They come up to him. And, you know, here they are. They've been combating Jesus. They've been fighting Jesus on so many levels. And so what do they do? They come up and they say, you know, let's, let's butter him up a little bit. Let's, let's add some honey to, to this trap and try to make it a little sweeter. And so in verse 14, Mark records for us what they say to him when they arrive. They begin by saying what? Rabbi. Now, did the Pharisees really believe that Jesus was a rabbi? No, they did not. He was Mary's son and the step son of a carpenter. He himself was a carpenter, which means what? That at the time when other young men were being called by their rabbis to come and follow them into the rabbinical tradition, Jesus wasn't passed. He didn't get the pass. He was sent home to go and ply his father's trade as a carpenter. So when they come and they say, Rabbi, did they really think he was a rabbi? No, they, they would have said, show me your credentials. 
What rabbi did you study under? What rabbinical school were you a part of? What tradition was that a part of? Was it part of the ultra-right pharisaical tradition or the left Sanhedrin tr tradition which, or uh, Sadducee tradition? Which, which one was it? Who, who did you train under? But they come and they, they say, hey, hey, rabbi, hey, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. What do they mean here? Do they mean that Jesus doesn't care about people? Is that what they're saying? No, they're saying he's no respecter of persons, right? That he treats uh, the rich young ruler the same way that he treated the demoniac. Right? That, that there was no respecter of persons in Jesus. That, that, that rich and poor, young and old, remember he receives the infants as well as the elderly. He, he heals all that come to him. He, he's ministering to the sick and to the lame, to those that other people would never touch. And yet he's also spending time with prostitutes and with tax collectors. I mean, Jesus is no respecter of persons. Which obviously meant he didn't care about anyone's opinion about what he did with and whom he did it with. And you are not swayed by appearances. In other words, what have they also seen? They've seen the, the centurion whose son was sick come up and run up to Jesus and ask, uh, or excuse me, for his servant uh, to be healed. And, and, and Jesus wasn't swayed. It was like, oh, oh, a Roman centurion. Oh, I better act differently now. Because no, he didn't. He didn't. He wasn't swayed by who or uh, what authority anyone came to him. And then they say, but truly teach the way of God. And this phrase, truly teach the way of God, uh, is insight into what we understand as exposition or exegesis. That that they're saying we you. You tell us the right ways of God. You expound uh, on God's law in the right way and tell the right ways about God. Now, let me ask you a question. Were they telling the truth? No. <laughs> the things that they said were true. But they didn't believe a shred of it. It was all smoke. They, it was flattery. They're coming in trying to flatter the Lord. Trying, and here they even say, we know that no one's opinion matters to you. And yet they're trying to gain entrance and audience with Jesus by using flattery. By trying to sway his opinion about them by the words that they're using about him. Interestingly, here yet again, Mark allows us to hear the right answer to the question, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? It's, he's exactly what they said. He is true. Teacher, we know that you are true. He is the teacher. Not only is he the teacher, he is the maker. <laughs> uh, Jesus, under what rabbinical tradition did you study under? I made you. <laughs> I made you and I have preserved you from birth till now. Right? Like the very people who are coming up and questioning Jesus' authority, Jesus' ability, his knowledge, all of these things. Jesus is the one who made them, who knit them together in their mother's womb, who breathed life into their lungs and who has preserved their life from the very beginning until now so that they can come and confront him with these questions. Who is this Jesus? He is the great teacher. He is the one who is true. He is the one who is no respecter of persons. And that's why every single one of us can take comfort in hope into coming to the feet of Jesus and knowing that we can be accepted because he promised that anyone who comes to me in John chapter 6, I will in no wise cast out. Why? Because he's not a respecter of persons. 
It doesn't matter your theological acumen. It doesn't matter how much you know about the Bible. It doesn't matter how righteous you have been on one hand or how sinful you have been on the other hand. Every single person who comes and bows down at the feet of Jesus will be accepted because he is no respecter of persons. And there's not one person who can come and push you out of line because they have some kind of class status or, or enough money or have been good enough or righteous enough. They cannot come in and take your place in line with the God of all creation because he is no respecter of persons and he is not swayed by appearances. There is no one who can come in and, 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 and I mean, come on. The Lord knows our frame, the psalmist says, that we are but dust. Is there any mound of dirt that can come and sway the eye of the God of all creation by their appearance? No. Now, people who think that they can. There are people who believe that they can. That if I just clean up my act enough, that if I just do enough nice things, if I do enough good things, that I'll somehow catch the eye of God and he'll let me off for all of my sins because I did enough good things. Beloved, let me tell you the truth today. Hell will be filled with people who did a lot of good and nice things, but never repented of their sins and bowed their knee to Jesus Christ alone. On the other hand, heaven will be filled with a lot. That it will only be filled with sinners who confess their sin before God, bow their knee to Jesus and were forgiven by free grace alone, not by works, lest any man should boast, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. So what they say is true, but they're not telling the truth because they don't believe a shred of it. And yet again, as we saw with the demoniac, as we've seen with some of the uh, evil spirits that Jesus cast out, Mark has allowed us to hear the right answer to the question that he's been rhetorically asking all along, who is this Jesus? Mark allows us again to hear the right answer from the wrong lips. And, and there is some irony here. Because everything that they do say is true. He is our teacher. He is true. He's not a respecter of persons or swayed by opinions or the fear of man. And he does truly teach God's way. But they don't give Jesus time to consider what they said. They launch right into their question. And what is the question? Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Uh, and, well, actually, firstly, is it lawful? And what they mean by lawful is not is it civilly lawful, but is it spiritually lawful? Remember, they just said, we know that you teach uh, God's ways truly. Truly teach the way of God. So they ask the question, is it lawful? And the implication is, is it spiritually lawful to pay Caesar taxes? Here they're specifically referring to a poll tax, which was required by every person. The same amount, whether you were rich or poor, it was a nominal amount, uh, but it was required nonetheless. Now, Little context here. Who is asking the question? The Pharisees and the Herodians. Who were the Herodians? They were the ones that supported Herod and his dynasty and rule over Israel. 
who had been put in place by Rome specifically to keep order and make sure that the taxes were collected. So that when it came to paying taxes to Caesar, the Herodians, they're like, yes, this is great. Plus, if you, you know, Herod was a respecter of persons. He was swayed by people's opinions and not many people liked him. So most of these Herodians probably would be equivalent to what we would think of in uh, uh, pre-American Europe, uh, monarchical system of courtian, court, uh, courtesans and, and people of the court. They got, to, they got to hang out with the bigwigs. They got to hang out you know, and go to these dinners and enjoy all these things that were probably being paid for by people's taxes, right? And so they're like pro-tax, great, this is good. The Pharisees, remember, ultra-conservative, religious, right? <clears throat> they were not. And they actually considered it Blasphemy and sacrilege to pay this tax and did not want to pay this tax. And here's why. Jesus, instead of asking, answering the question outright, what does he do? He says, bring me a denarius. Now what's interesting is that they had one to produce. So they bring him one. Just going out on a limb. The government whose name is on the money that you carry in your pocket. You are in some way, shape, or form in subservience to that government. So it is interesting that they even had one to produce. They do. They produce it. They give it to Jesus. He looks at the denarius. And what is he looking for? He says, whose image or likeness and inscription is this. Now at the time of Jesus' life and ministry, the image that would have been on this denarius would have been the image of Tiberius Caesar Augustus. It would have been his picture. So just like we have a quarter and you see George Washington's face on it, there would have been a coin with the, the imprint of the Caesar's face on the coin. And there was an inscription on the front and on the back. The inscription on the front with the face was Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Okay, son of the divine Augustus. If you will remember that within Rome there was a, uh, a cult of worship uh, surrounding the emperor. And the emperor was believed to be a god. And here Tiberius is claiming for himself divinity as well as being in the direct lineage of the divine August One. The backside of the coin had another inscription which refers to Tiberius as the chief pontiff. Or in other words, the chief high priest. So now consider the Pharisees who take the law of God seriously. And now they are supposed to take a coin that declares that Caesar is the son of the divine August one and the chief high priest. There was no Pharisee that was signing up to pay that tax. And so Jesus takes the coin and he asks them whose it is, whose likeness and inscription is this, and they tell the truth, it is Caesar's. And so Jesus says to them that they ought to then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, in ancient times, as well as in present day, whether you know this or not. 
Whoever's name and likeness is on the money that you have, technically, it belongs to them. Your money is the property of the United States Treasury that you have. If you have foreign money, that money, they will, if it came push to shove, they will let you know that that money has their name on it and it belongs to them and not to you. And so it was in ancient times. And so all of the money that had Caesar's name and face on it was considered to technically be his. And so when you were paying that tax, you were rendering back to him that a portion of that which he so graciously, you know, allowed you to use. And that's the way it goes. This is why, for example, here in most recent history, after the death of the queen in England, what is happening with the currency in England? It's being destroyed, and new currency is being printed with the image and likeness and name and inscription of the new king of England. Okay? And so, Jesus is not saying something that is like a new revelation. Whose image and likeness is it? It's Caesar's. Well, give Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But he doesn't stop there. What does he also say? Render unto God that which belongs to God. The object belongs to the one whose name and image have been imprinted upon it. And here we get to the point of what Jesus is saying. I'm going to make a, I'm, I'm going to, we're going to pause there for a second. I'm going to make a couple of comments and then we're going to go on. Number one, um, it is biblical, right and true, it is the teaching of scripture that we as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, are to be uh, in submission to the governing authorities over us. Paul writes that in Romans chapter 13 to the church in Rome. A, a government that was persecuting them beyond anything that you and I could possibly really imagine. And Paul calls them to be in submission to that government. He says that it is for their good. And he tells them to pay taxes to whom taxes are due. And throughout scripture, we are called to pay taxes, to be in submission to governing authorities, even those governing authorities that we do not agree with. I cannot find anywhere in Scripture that says that taxes are good. And it is one thing to call us to pay them. It is one thing to call us to be in submission to them. It's another thing entirely to say that somehow Jesus here is saying that taxes are good. He's making no statement on the validity of these taxes. He's merely saying... Give Caesar what is due to Caesar. And that's something that we are called to do. We are not called to go out of our way to pay Caesar or the IRS or any other government authority one cent more than they are actually due. And I would say that it is incumbent upon every person to pay the government as little as they possibly can. <laughs> because 
whatever good taxation can do, taxation in every form is theft. It is the forceful uh, taking of another person's possessions. Now, a society cannot run without it. That doesn't mean that it's not what it is. And we are called to be in submission to our authorities, our governing authorities. We are called to pay our taxes. And so we ought to do. But it's still a breaking of the Ten Commandments. And where I think this applies most to us today is in our particular government, government, which is meant to be of the people, by the people, for the people. When you and I go and stand in a ballot box and there is an opportunity to either vote for the increased theft of our neighbor's property or the decreased theft of our neighbor's property, that we need to take that very seriously. That we should not think lightly about our own culpability in voting to take more of our neighbor's possessions away from them and to give them to someone else by force. Because that's what taxes are. And so I am saying that we need to think very, very carefully about those things. Is there ever a time that we need to possibly increase taxes? Mm, maybe. Each one of those things needs to be considered very carefully, prayerfully. And, and consider what it means to participate, willingly participate in taking from our neighbors so that their wealth can be redistributed somewhere else. It's theft. And we should consider it that way. And we should be very careful about what we do with it. Now again, don't get me wrong. You have no society that can do anything, civil society, without some taxes. That doesn't mean that it isn't what it is. And we should take that very seriously. And both Jesus here and Paul in Romans 13 tell us that we should pay our taxes to whom they are due. But never do they say uh, that those taxes are good. In fact, we read today in the Old Testament about Samuel uh, coming to anoint David as the new king of Israel. But remember, once upon a time, Israel had no king. And when they said they wanted a king, what did God, through Samuel, tell the people of Israel were, was going to happen when they brought a king? that they were going to be taxed, that the king was going to take their land, that he was going to take their livestock for his own, that he was going to take their sons for his army and their daughters for his court. And never did God say, and that's all good, you should really want that stuff. God specifically told them those things to warn them of the evils that were going to come as a result of submitting to that kind of an authority. So, that is for what it is. But here's the deal. Jesus is not having this discourse with these men to talk to us about taxes. The whole point of what he says is not render to Caesar what is Caesar's, the whole point of what he says is render to God what is God's. And in both cases, the Pharisees who were keeping a strict religious uh, uh, keeping of God's law, as well as the Herodians who were 
off in left field, breaking all of God's laws, neither of them were actually rendering to God what belongs to God. Remember what I said just now. The object belongs to the one whose name and image have been imprinted upon it. That is a truism. And so Jesus says, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But then he says, render unto God that which belongs to God. And what belongs to God? The coin belongs to Caesar. Every person belongs to God. You see, you and I, and every single human being that has ever been born and will ever be born on the face of this earth, have been born bearing the image of God. In Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, God says in the beginning, at the time of creation, he says, let us make man in our image. It says male and female, he created them in the image of God. This is where we get the theological idea of the imago Dei. It just means image of God, that each and every single human being carries intrinsic value and dignity because they were made in the image of God. That goes regardless of race, that goes regardless of color, it goes regardless of whatever country of origin that they come from, whether they come from the lowest class or the highest class in their society, it does not matter who you are. If you have been born, you were born bearing the image of the God of all creation. And because of that, you have dignity and worth. You are an image bearer. It is the, it is the very theological idea that has the power and ought to have the power in our own lives to break down every kind of prejudice that exists. Because we, of all people, should be the first to say that every single person bears the image of God. And so what should we do? We should not seek to destroy the image of God in infanticide or in euthanasia. We should not seek to destroy the image of God uh, by seeking to break the sixth commandment and murder other people. We should not seek to mar the image of God. By tearing each other down or, or, or seeking to destroy each other's lives. And this truth that all men bear the image of God ought to break down every prejudice that the enemy would try to raise up in our wicked and sinful hearts. Not only have we been made in the image of God, Ephesians chapter 3, Paul begins to pray for the Ephesian church. And he says, I bow my knee before the Father, praying to him from whom every family on earth is named. Which means what? Not only do we bear the likeness, the image of the God who made us, we bear his name. His name has been imprinted upon our hearts as well. And so each one of us and each one of the people that were standing around when Jesus said, hey, show me a coin. Whose image and likeness is this? Whose inscription is this? It's as if Jesus was also saying, and look, I see a crowd full of minted coins upon whose likeness I see the image of my father upon whose name they have been called from heaven. In fact, here, especially the Jewish people, out of all the peoples of the earth, God called them to himself. And what is he saying? Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Hey, Caesar, he can have the coin. But you know what? You and your life, you belong to God. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. But do not fail to render to God what belongs to God. Now, often this is sort of given parameters in the language of time, talent, and treasure. 
People would say, that's what you need to render to God. You need to give Him your time. You need to give Him your talent. You need to give Him your treasure. And that is not untrue, but it does not go far enough. Because if we belong to the Lord, that means we belong to Him completely. Not only that, Psalm 24 verse 1 says that the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. You know what that means? It means that the gold that Caesar's face was imprinted on, it may have been a coin that he minted, but the gold itself, that belonged to God too. Caesar, you can have your coin to play with. You're going to die, but the earth and everything that's in it belongs to me. The earth belongs to the Lord and the fullness thereof. We belong to the Lord, body, mind, and soul. All that we are, all that we have belongs to him. And it is our duty and obligation and ought to be our joy to render it all to him. This is why time, talent, treasure doesn't go far enough. Every word, every thought, every breath, all for the glory of God. That is what God is doing. But what's the problem? The problem is that you and I are incapable of doing that in perfection. And this is why Jesus came. And what did he do? He took on the likeness of Adam so that in the image of the Son of Man the Eternal One from before the beginning of earth could be crucified on the cross after having lived his life body, mind, and soul all that he was all that he had Every word, every thought, every breath, all for the glory of God. He did that in perfection for you and for me. So that he might offer himself up on a cross and be crucified even for the Pharisees and the Herodians that were standing before him that day and trying to dig a pit for him. A pit that would ultimately prove the words of the wise one in the Proverbs who says that whoever digs a pit for someone else will fall into it themselves. Even for them, Jesus offered himself up as a sacrifice. And though we cannot do this in perfection, Christ came and he did it for us so that we might live our lives by faith and through the faithfulness of the Son of God, who as Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, loved us and died for us so that we could follow in his steps covered by his grace so that we could try to live our lives every word every thought every breath all for the glory of God knowing that we will falter and fail and yet like the righteous man who falls seven times get back up and understand that each one of those faltering steps are covered by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us so that we might be redeemed. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me today? Father, you tell us in your word that we are to be in submission to the governing authorities. But even by the very words of Jesus here telling us to render 
unto Caesar what are Caesar's and unto God what are God's, we understand that there are lines that can be crossed where a government may try to seek to keep for themselves that which belongs to God. And where obedience to the government means disobedience to God, we have one clear command, and that is to obey God rather than man. I pray that you'd give us wisdom for that, Lord, and at the same time that we would even in times where we do not agree that, Lord, you would remind us, as you did through the prophet Jeremiah, that we are to pray for the good and for the peace of the land that we live in. For Jeremiah, that meant praying for Babylon. For us, Lord, it means praying even when we believe our ruling authorities might be wicked. You call us to pray for their good and for their peace. We know, God, that their greatest good is that they would repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, God, we pray for that salvation to come, even for those who lead in our land. And we do pray for the peace and for the good of our land, and that, God, you would help us to learn what it means to joyfully submit even to governing authorities as unto the Lord, so that our submission is not merely to man, but is to you. And God, as we seek to live our lives to your glory, would you allow us to receive and be covered by your grace so that even our failing attempts, Lord, will be covered. And as we seek to please you, we can know that God, you are delighted in us as your children. Thank you for this today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 We're going to move.